Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. DC deadlock, Democrats remain divided, Biden's spending plans in peril. COVID curb, Merck claims its new pill cuts the risk of death and hospitalization. And powering prices, rising energy costs and inflation to multi-year highs in Europe. It's Friday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Friday, a day when, minor miracle, the U.S. government remains open. The state of President Biden's stimulus agenda is best left unspoken. And a week finished to Q3, but the bulls are not broken because on Wall Street, we're looking at a mostly higher open to begin the final quarter of the year. In Europe, though, it's in October. Oh, no. As I mentioned, Eurozone inflation now sitting at the highest levels in over a decade as energy prices spike. We've got all the details on that. Plus, breathing space in Asia as Chinese stock markets will remain closed for the golden week holiday. Global stocks truly lacked the Midas touch, or should we say the gold finger, In September, the Nasdaq plunged 5% as bond yields bite. Time to call the real bond, perhaps better known as 007, the new James Bond film making its UK premiere this week. I'm sure no one missed that. It's titled No Time to Die, but there's no quantum of solace amid the spectra of rising borrowing costs, food and energy shortages, less Federal Reserve firepower and a looming debt crisis, uh, a debt ceiling crisis. It's all weighing on investor sentiment. And uh, let's not forget, President Biden's wider stimulus hopes are being held up by the Democrats' very own Dr. No. Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrats' liberal Frank in revolt too. There could be a windfall rather than a skyfall, though, for the bulls in all of this, perhaps. Further delays in fiscal spending could mean a longer delay in Federal Reserve tapering. But let's not be complacent. Diamonds may be forever. Bull markets are not. Let's get right to the drivers. And thank goodness it's Friday. Nancy Pelosi refuses to live and let die. No, we're still going. The US House Speaker vowing to put the $1 trillion infrastructure bill up for a vote today. After a failed attempt yesterday, the Biden administration agenda truly at a critical juncture. John Harwood joins me from Washington. No more bond puns, please. Um, do we see a vote today, John? And if so, on what? What's the latest? I would expect a vote today, but I wouldn't expect it, uh, Julia, on that um, uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, because the reason that didn't take place last night was the negotiations that were very intensively underway between the White House, Democratic congressional leaders in both the House and Senate, the two holdout senators, Manchin and Cinema, uh, as well as Progressive. They're trying to come to a framework agreement that would allow the progressive to feel comfortable with the infrastructure plan and uh, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema to get comfortable with the reconciliation plan. 
The reason they need a vote today is that the end of the fiscal year was the expiration of the federal highway program. They need to have a at least a short-term extension of the federal highway program to avoid highway projects coming to a dead stop. Uh, so if there is a vote today, and I expect there will be, I would expect it to be on a short-term extension of the federal uh, highway program rather than the infrastructure package. It's possible, I guess, if they can actually get a detailed framework agreement uh, that they could, f- uh, the progressives could feel comfortable enough to allow the uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill to go forward. But I think the negotiations likely will take longer than that. I want to put an investor spin on this as well, just given um, the show focus. And do you agree, perhaps, that it might mean a delay to Fed tapering? And also, if we're seeing ultimately less spending, perhaps, and particularly given uh, cinema's view on not having further tax rises, that's sort of a boon for, for corporates, if not individuals in this country as well. Well, certainly the package is going to be smaller than President Biden proposed. And because it's going to be smaller, there'll be less spending. And there'll also be fewer of the tax increases that he proposed on both uh, high-income individuals and corporations. So uh, corporations presumably will see, depending on what exact pieces shake out, uh, can see that as a positive. We're not going to see, uh, I don't think, the corporate rate, for example, go uh, up to 28%. It'll be somewhere between 21 and 28. Um, We've also seen some of the uh, tax items on high-income individuals, like step-up basis, the things that designed to capture capital gains that are passed on to heirs. Uh, uh, that is, has fallen out of the package so far. Um, in terms of the spending, a lot of this spending, of course, as you know, Julia, was going to take place over a number of years. So I don't know how much that will factor into the uh, tapering decision by the Fed. Some of it is short-term spending. For example, the child tax credit, that's money that goes out every month into the uh, bank accounts of people who qualify, but they might narrow the number of people who qualify. If so, that would be less stimulative spending in the economy. Wow. I mean, it's already been a really long week in D.C. Something tells me it could be another long day. John, thank you for your wisdom on that and have a great weekend. John Harwood there. All right, let's move on to our next driver. Drug maker Merck has announced a potential breakthrough treatment for COVID-19. It says its experimental pill can reduce the risk of death and hospitalization by half. The company will apply for emergency use authorization in the United States. And if that gets greenlit, the pill would be the first oral antiviral drug for COVID. CNN's Elizabeth Cohen joins us with more. I'm running out of words there, Elizabeth. Great to have you with us. Just compare this to what we already have in terms of um, monoclonal antibodies, because, of course, that's taken intravenously. So this appears to be, if it works, easier and cheaper, but perhaps slightly less effective. What more do we know? Easy, easier is the key word here, Julia. So yeah. monoclonal antibodies, which can be given early on in, early on in COVID infection, that's when they're given. It's either intravenously or by several shots. You have to get four shots. And, and that's that, that can be tough to administer, at least in the United States. Hospitals have had a tough time getting people in for that, administering it. It hasn't gone so smoothly. This is a pill. A pill is a whole lot easier. So if you know that you've just been exposed to COVID, you could conceivably call your family doctor, talk to them or go see them, and then they could just call in a prescription for you. That's way easier. So let's take a look at what the Merck's clinical trial found. It was just announced this morning. So they took, these are participants who were in the early 
early stages of COVID-19, they were no more than five days out from a positive COVID test. So you can see how soon that is. More than 700 people in the trial, about half were given the drug, it's an antiviral, and about half were given a placebo. The folks who got the placebo, which is, you know, a drug that does nothing, 45 ended up being hospitalized over the next month and eight of them died. Folks who got the drug, 28 were hospitalized and zero died. You can see that is a huge difference. Obviously, these results need to be scrutinized by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, by the EMA in Europe to, to see if they hold up. And at least in the United States, also an external board of advisors will look at it. But if these results hold up, this really could be a game changer for people in the early stages of COVID. Yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed. What about potential side effects? And I guess the other question, if I can tie it to this too, is they're not the only ones that are working on this. I believe Pfizer has also got an option that they're working on and and Roche as well. Right. It's not surprising that other pharmaceutical companies are working on this. This is an antiviral. It's very basic. You have antibiotics for bacterial infections. Uh, you have antivirals for viral infections. It just sort of took a while for them to get here. And it's interesting because Merck tried this drug out in folks who were hospitalized and the results weren't nearly as good. And at least in the in the U.S., it's not on the market for hospitalized patients. It didn't it didn't really go anywhere. And that's because, as with many viral infections, you're much better off giving it very early on. And again, when it's a pill rather than um, injections or IV drugs, it's much easier to administer to people who are out of the hospital. Yeah, we will keep our fingers crossed that um, these results and then the FDA is uh, happy enough to uh, sanction this. Elizabeth Cohen, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, now to Europe, where inflation hit a 13-year high as energy prices spike. Eurozone consumer prices reached 3.4% in September, with Germany's inflation at its highest level in nearly three decades. Anna Stewart is live in London with more. I mean, higher fuel prices make us uncomfortable. These kind of inflation numbers, increasingly (laughs) uncomfortable, I think, for the European Central Bank. I believe they said 4% inflation by the end of the year, but then it would come down sharply. And I guess the fear is that we don't see that. Exactly that. And I think even economists right now are increasingly divided as to whether this really is transitory. Are we at the peak or is this heading higher? And I'd say in recent days, that worrying specter of stagflation looms. I'm seeing that word used more and more. We're obviously not there yet. But it's really interesting looking at these inflation figures. We can bring you a chart from Eurostat because it's gas that is really driving it up 17 percent. Now, this is obviously very high on the agenda for European governments. A uh, Eurozone finance minister on Monday will probably see this being discussed. Some governments like France, Greece and Spain have already taken some measures to cap the price so it's not being passed on to the consumer. Of course, that would be at the cost for taxpayers or for utility firms. But that might mean that we don't see quite as much of the gas inflation bleeding through into the next month's figures. But as you say, this is adding more pressure onto the ECB. In the last meeting, they did say they were reducing the asset purchases moderately. There may be more pressure for a tightening. But I have to say, Christine Lagarde so far has really cautioned against that. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. Um, We've been talking to you all week about UK labour shortages, um, and I feel we have to continue the conversation. Let's talk about pork. (laughs) Literally, we have a situation with pigs in blanket. Panic buying pigs in blanket. Not yet, but we might. Anna, tell us more about what's going on. It's so upsetting, Julia. Honestly, I feel like there's a shortage of just about everything or the risk of, and it's going to hit our Christmas dinner. There were already concerns about Christmas turkeys, and actually the government announced that they were issuing 5,500 temporary visas for poultry workers to come from overseas. 
5,000 temporary visas for uh, truck drivers to help with the petrol crisis, amongst other things. And now the National Pig Association says they are operating at a 25% reduced capacity. Pigs that are ready for slaughter, ready for processing, aren't being. And that means the younger pigs coming up through the process are at risk. There are huge welfare issues. There are too many pigs in the pig farm. So it's leading to culls. I was reading one report of a farmer having to cull hundreds of little piglets. This is a huge issue. And it does feel like while there are labor shortages and issues across Europe, in the UK, it has been exacerbated by Brexit. Over 60% of meat processing employees before Brexit came from the EU. And there have been huge calls now for such a long time for the government to do something in terms of visas, make it more attractive. Maybe salaries need to increase. They need to become more attractive jobs if you're going to get British workers to do them. But so far, nothing has happened. And my goodness, our Christmas dinners are at risk. And so, unfortunately, are the profits for farmers and meat processing companies here in the UK. Julia? And I feel it's about time to apologise to all the vegetarians out there that are feeling really sick at this time in the morning in the United Sorry. States from wherever you are in the world. <laughs> and my, my mother once cured my sister of vegetarianism, I think, with three days of nut roasts. So we can all look forward to a nut roast at Christmas, perhaps. Yikes. Sorry, Mum. Uh, but I'm not lying. Anna Stewart, great job. Thank you for that. OK, on Venezuela is the latest country to face currency woes yet again. Today, it launched a central bank-backed digital currency. It also cut six zeros from the Bolivar, the national currency, in an attempt to fight rampant hyperinflation, something that they've already tried twice. Stefano Posibon joins us now. Stefano, great to have you with us. You know, I read this week that the IMF believes in hyperinflation or inflation there is going to be around 5,500% this year. And I, I read one stat that said it's 300,000% in 2019. I mean, this is just unimaginable. Explain what's happened today, because these are two separate issues in my mind. Yes, uh, correct, uh, Julia. What is uh, happening uh, today is that yet again, the Venezuelan government is uh, chopping off uh, zeros uh, out of uh, its uh, digital out of his uh, currency and it's the third time they've done it since 2008 they've cut uh, 14 zeros so far meaning that the current the new currency that is being launched today is worth a hundred thousand billions of the ones that were in circulation up until 2008 this is because uh, Venezuela has uh, chronic issues of uh, hyperinflation. The figure that you just mentioned, 5,500%, uh, is uh, actually low for Venezuelan standards. As you said, Venezuela had over 300,000% year-on-year inflation in 2019-2020. That was the highest inflation in uh, the world. And uh, there is little sign that this new digital currency could help in the fight against uh, inflation. At the same time, the government is calling it a digital currency to discourage people to use uh, cash as another tactic to combat hyperinflation. But Venezuela has a chronic power issues. Blackouts happen almost every day in uh, Caracas uh, and uh, you don't even have a tap and pay on your card when you travel across uh, Venezuela. So it's a very different thing, for example, for what El Salvador is trying to do with uh, its uh, Bitcoin launch, uh, Julia. Oh, and you've led me there. Speaking of power, what's the latest from El Salvador quickly, Estefano? Yes, correct, Julia. El Salvador has, uh, is trying to use Bitcoin uh, as uh, its official tender starting uh, this year. This is called 
this has caused quite a stir in El Salvador. El Salvador has so far used the U.S. dollar as its legal tender, but the president, Nayib Bukele, is trying to move away from the dollar and launch a new Bitcoin-based economy to woo investors and startups to move to El Salvador. This is something, by the way, that, Julia, Venezuela tried to do with the Petro, its own cryptocurrency, back in 2018 and 2019. It didn't work that well, so they resorted yet again to the traditional in Venezuela tactic of just chopping zeros out of their currency. Julia? Yeah, I think we all know what we think of that. Stefano Posibon. Thank you very much for that update there. And for more on crypto as legal tender, stay tuned. Later, I speak to the CEO of Strike, who's involved in El Salvador's crypto adoption. He's also the man behind Twitter's new tipping option, too. I'm very excited to have him on the show. He's coming up later on, too. For now, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In Ecuador, at least 118 people have now died following a massive prison riot on Tuesday. At least 79 people are wounded and receiving treatment. Authorities have been inspecting the prison to re-establish control. They've seized guns, drugs and a few explosives. Australia says in November it will reopen its borders to citizens and permanent residents who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. That will allow over half the population to travel domestically and internationally. Australia's tough COVID-19 restrictions help to mostly control the coronavirus inside its borders. OK, still to come here on First Move, he says he's the oldest and the boldest. I think he said boldest, B-A-L-D, actually. But anyway, he's a smart man in crypto. Billionaire Bitcoin bull Mike Novogratz talks China and regulation. Don't miss that. And bringing back Bollywood, India's movie business moves beyond COVID with cinema reopenings and blockbuster deals. The CEO of Reliance joins us later. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where it's looking like a higher open across the board for U.S. stocks as the curtain rises on fourth quarter trade. Stocks getting a bounce after yesterday's weakness, despite a whole host of market challenges, as we've been discussing, including the worsening global supply chain chaos. Shares of U.S. retailer Bed Bath & Beyond fell more than 20 percent yesterday after they warned of weaker sales, rising costs and possible product shortages during the holidays. And they're not the only retailer seeing red. Discount chain Dollar Tree announced this week that it's raising prices to more than a dollar on some goods because of inflationary pressures. I'll have to change the name soon. Now, a bit of price inflation in the cryptocurrency space today, too. All the major cryptos are higher. Bitcoin bouncing after posting another week, September. It's fifth straight September fall, in fact. Now, one of my big questions today and onwards is the relationship between cryptocurrency prices and the quality of the underlying blockchain technology. It's something I discussed at a special event for CNN Business with Mike Novogratz, founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital. Key to it all is what happens with regulation, of course, and his view is that the fraudsters and not the innovators should be the target. He described how his firm is preparing. I'm desperately trying to hire a senior Washington guy. Uh, hopefully in the next week or two, I, I, I land him to help with our outreach to the political side, both Republicans and Democrats. Right? Republicans a little bit more like crypto because it's libertarian. But in reality, it's a very progressive <laughs> Uh, system. And what's weird is the progressives don't like it, right? Elizabeth Warren is shooting bullets at it. AOC and her cohort haven't said anything positive. And I'm like, wait a minute, there's nothing more progressive than cutting out the rent takers, 
right? Banks charge $8 billion a year in overdraft fees. That mostly hits the poor. They charge $350 or $4 uh, on an ATM transaction. That mostly hits the poor. Crypto will make banking relatively free, uh, money transfer relatively free. And so it really is progressive. We've done a bad job educating them. And so there's a big education initiative that has to happen. Right now, Gary Gensler, who understands crypto to a pretty large degree, who runs the SEC, he wants to be the regulator. There, there are things that if I was running the SEC uh, that I'd say, I'm worried about that, I'm worried about that. Uh, ironically, it's not the stuff that's on chain. It's not the decentralized finance stuff. That actually is almost self-regulating because you actually, the whole community sees exactly what's happening. There's complete transparency. Where he should be worrying is this hybrid where you're doing a lot of crypto business, but there's a lot that's not on chain, right? And then are, do we have, you know, organizations running as banks that aren't banks that have way too much leverage? And do consumers even understand they're taking credit risk in those places? Like, yes, that's what the SEC should be worrying about. Uh, here's the trick. Because a lot of cryptos aren't securities, uh, you know, by the definition of what a security is, which is a 19, you know, 30 something law, it's not even clear that Gary's got the right to regulate. And so he is pushing Congress to try to give him, I'm guessing, uh, more power to regulate. Uh, he's got the right to regulate some of the space, but not the broad swath of regulation he wants. And so given where Congress is today, where we are having a really hard time passing any bill, uh, we'll see if, you know, the future for, for, for the SEC is a broader mandate than it is today. Um, if I was there, I would do some regulation, but broadly I would leave a lot of space for innovation. This is a young industry. It's creating jobs at an incredible rate. Um, it does self-regulate. Uh, they should be going after the fraudsters and the gimmicksters, um, but really allowing space for rena rena uh, innovation. To many, China's decision to slam the door on crypto seemed inevitable as they developed their own central bank digital coin. Mike told me Bitcoin is a symbol of freedom, and you heard that a bit there, and that it's being read in wildly different ways between the East and in the West. President Xi, six years ago, made a pivot from wanting to be part of this global, globalizing world to saying, no, no, I'm going to be in charge. We're going to have a more authoritarian space, not a less authoritarian space. Uh, I'm going to be a dictator in lots of ways, right? Or at least a, a long-term leader. That's so anti-American, right? Bitcoin is about freedom. The blockchain is about limited government. It's about, hey, we, we, we're not going to have no government, but man, we don't want government knowing every last thing. And so even the decision on a central bank digital, digital currency, right? You can have one like Brian Brooks proposed and like I think the U.S. will do and I pray the U.S. will do where the Fed sets guidelines on what kind of private organization can set one up and where they need to keep the deposits to make sure that that stablecoin is backed one-to-one. -one. Or you could have one run by the central bank where they get every bit of pricing information that anyone spends. Now, I personally don't want the, the Fed or any part of the U.S. government knowing everything I spend my money on. Uh, 
right? And, and, and I think it's so anti-American to think we're going to have this surveillance state. And, you know, and so it's a beautiful setup in that China is showing you who they are. Uh, and they're using this technology in a really, uh, because it's not decentralized, right? They can call it a, a, a Chinese cryptocurrency, but it's a centralized cryptocurrency where you have programmable money with complete surveillance. And I think in the West, we want the exact opposite. Hmm. For most of us, crypto is a fairly new concept, yet Mike has been investing in the space for almost a decade. And with Bitcoin trading at $47,000 a coin and with hundreds now coins now being traded, I asked Mike for his 10-year price prediction on Bitcoin and how many of those hundreds of currencies will actually survive over the next 10 years. I think the Bitcoin price is over 500000 in 10 years' time. And I would bet... 75% of cryptos don't make it, right? Oh, uh, I, I'm, I'm pulling I that. Said more, more like 90. <laughs> it, it might be 90. We'll reconvene you know, in 10 yeah. years' time and discuss. Yeah, we'll come back. <laughs> the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The opening bell has sounded on Wall Street for the final time this week. And as expected, we've got a solidly higher open on Wall Street. The bull's coming off a volatile third quarter, but the S&P 500 was able to eke out a sixth straight quarterly gain. Inflation pressures, though, still making headlines. The Federal Reserve's preferred measure of inflation, the core PCE price index, rose by 3.6% year over year in August. That's the biggest jump since way back in the 1990s. It comes on the same day as a troubling new read on Eurozone inflation, too. Now, Merck, one of the big gainers in early trading today, the drug maker announcing that its experimental COVID-19 pill can reduce the risk of death and hospitalization by half. If approved, the medication would become the first oral pill that fights viral infection for COVID-19, as we've already discussed on the show. Okay, easy, free, financially at least, and instant communication worldwide. That's the beauty of a social network like a Twitter or a Facebook. But wouldn't it be amazing if that were the case for global payments too? Well, my next guest is working on exactly that, making that model a reality. He's the CEO of a company called Strike, and his company powers the new Twitter tipping option. It allows users to send each other Bitcoin at virtually no cost. And joining us now is Jack Mallis. He's the CEO of Strike. Jack, fantastic to have you on the show. I have to say, when I saw this announcement, it completely blew my mind. And no offense to Twitter, to content providers. It wasn't about them getting tips. Let's just take a step back and explain what the vision is. What does Strike do? Julia, first of all, how are we this morning? Thanks for having me. Um, (laughs) Strike, uh, the thesis we hold at Strike is that Bitcoin, the monetary network, is the best monetary network in human history, Julia. It's the only inherently global monetary network we've ever seen, and it offers finality both instantly and at relatively no cost anywhere in the world. And so we make use of that monetary network as it compares to the Visa monetary network or the Western Union monetary network or the Square monetary network or the PayPal monetary network. And we use the Bitcoin monetary network not necessarily to speculate on the price, but as financial rails under the hood to make for efficient, free, global, and instant payments. And we're talking about remittance. We're talking about checking out at commerce. We're talking about online tipping. And we make use of this really 
granular in innovation for humanity in monetary network sense. Okay, so we've got the Bitcoin network. We've also got something called the Lightning network. And I know you were one of the earliest mm -hmm. developers of this. Let's, before we dig into the details of this Gloman payments network that we're talking about, just explain the importance of the Lightning network, because I do think my viewers need to understand how much of a game changer that is too when you're talking about particularly efficiency and speed. You got it. Yeah, so everyone's familiar with the mainstream media critiques that Bitcoin is one, right. it's too slow, supposedly, to make use of payments and it's too expensive, right? So the Lightning Network set out to achieve and solve those two variables. Is one, can we solve the variable of time for finality? Can we make a Bitcoin transaction instant? And then two, can we solve the variable cost so that a Bitcoin transaction isn't too expensive to buy a cup of coffee? And those were the two optimizations the Lightning Network set out to solve. And so when you take the Bitcoin legacy monetary network and you combine it with the protocol of the lightning network, now you have a monetary asset and a monetary network that's inherently global and those two variables solve where finality can be achieved instantly and finality can be achieved at relatively no cost. Again, no other monetary network in human history can say the same. And that's why it is such a big deal. I mean, this is basically what Facebook was envisioning, I think, with, with Libra, but everyone went, whoa, we don't want to give Facebook that kind of power. Twitter just seems to obviously with, with help, got there first. And I suppose that's no surprise given Jack Dorsey's um, interest in, in crypto. But can all the big social networks now in some way sort of tap into this via the, the capabilities yes. of the Lightning Network? Of course. Let me draw it akin to the internet, Julia, in the sense that all of these companies are tapped into the internet. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, they all use the World Wide Web. They all use HTTPS, TCPIP requests and live on the same standard for communication. Bitcoin as a monetary network is doing the same for money. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, they can all interface with their users in a monetary, global, instantaneous and free fashion on a singular standard for money in the same way that they operate on the singular standard for communication. Bitcoin network is not an optional monetary network. It is the monetary network to operate for instantaneous global settlement and how different companies, different services, different internet networks like Twitter and Facebook, how they deem to use it is up to them, but it is a singular standard in the same way that we don't have a lot of internets. We have one, we won't have a lot of monetary networks. We will have one that offers instantaneous free global settlement. I mean, the key here is, you know, and it was something that I realized when I got to the United States. It was like, um, you want to send somebody money. Do you have Venmo? No. OK. Do you have PayPal? Uh, yeah, I do. Oh, OK, great. Then I can I can send via PayPal. Do you have pay Chase Pay? No, but I have Venmo. No one interacted with everybody else. So we needed some way of bringing all these sort of payment systems, these individual payment systems um, together. I think anyone that is involved in sending money from A to B probably sat up and looked at this, whether it's a visa, a MasterCard, um, a Western Union with remittances too. I mean, the, 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 the capacity for this to be a game changer for me is, is huge. What are the limitations, Jack, as someone who's involved? What are the limitations of this that you can see? The limitations, to be quite frank, is that we're not all onboarded onto the same standard. You're absolutely correct. If I have my Venmo account linked to my Twitter account, can I receive a tip from Japan? No, because the Venmo network is closed. Only other Venmo users can tip me, and that's restricted to the United States. 
If I have my strike app linked to my Twitter account, can I receive a tip from Japan? Yes. In fact, I just did. And the, we need to get everyone onto the same monetary standard. And let's be clear, that doesn't mean you have to love Bitcoin. That doesn't mean you have to think mm. the Bitcoin price is going to the moon, right? We're using it under the hood. So as a tip comes in from Japan on the Bitcoin rails, Strike's going to take the Bitcoin, auto-convert it to dollars, and credit you the dollars. So users don't know Bitcoin's being used, but it's an, a standard under the hood. So there's a world not far from here, Julia, where my Venmo account can pay my Cash App account. My Cash App account can pay and tip on Facebook. My Facebook account can tip someone on Instagram. Instagram can tip on Twitter. If we're all on the same standard in the same way that we're all on the same internet, interoperability and connectivity become seamless, easy, global, instant, and free. Yeah, and the point here is, is you don't have to accept Bitcoin, for example, if, if it's transferred in Bitcoin, you could accept to receive it in US dollars or Japanese yen, to your point, if it's, um, if it's coming, coming from Japan. Okay, so I mentioned in the introduction that it was virtually costless. What is the relative cost? I mean, if you're doing like a transaction on a credit card, the average cost, I guess, is around two and a half percent. How low and what is the cost of using this? And, and if it is so low, Jack, how does Strike make money? Yeah, well, how low can it get? That low. Yeah, race Zero. to the bottom. Zero. <laughs> race to the bottom, baby. Yeah, so wh let's talk about the 2.5% of a card processor. Why? It's because all of the legacy fixed costs and intermediaries, that's the key point, that are required to achieve settlement. When I go check out at a Starbucks, Julia, the dollars that I'm pledging to pay Starbucks don't instantaneously somehow hop out, jump out of my debit card and pop into the cash register. No, there's a lot of intermediaries, banks, credit association, balance sheet float that's required to achieve settlement for Starbucks to actually retain the dollars that I pledged to pay them. And that is why it's two and a half percent. So for Strike, monetizing this is easy. Monetization is built into the system. Instead of a large retailer paying 2.9%, Strike can, we could charge them 0.05% if we want. And all of those 0.05%, it's all cash profit. And no other processing or monetary network can bring prices down that low because of the fixed cost. They'd go out of business, they'd go bankrupt. So, Strike, we can be as revolutionary as with tech as we are with pricing. And monetization is built into the system in that sense. And we, to all the legacy monetary networks that just can't compete. Um, and and it's not instant, but it's far quicker, actually, than than what we're seeing today in terms of the old payment rails. Quite frankly, as any small business owner watching knows it can take days and weeks for for transactions to settle. And that can be a huge problem for, for any business, which is why I think this is also so transformative as well. Um, know your customer. How are you getting around that? Because, you know, I was speaking to the chief legal officer of Gemini, which is a big cryptocurrency exchange, and they were talking about the challenges of know your customer rules when we're talking about the crypto space in particular and, and trying to understand who's doing what, particularly where regulators are concerned. How do you get around that very quickly, Jack? We don't get around anything. We're a regulated entity. We comply with regulation. We take it very, very seriously. And compliance is a big deal. Listen, I mean, we're living in an extraordinarily disruptive time. Imagine a world before the internet. It seems scary. And we're living through a similar dematerialization and disruption that, for money. It's the same thing. Uh, and so everyone around the world, whether you're a consumer, a retailer, a business, or a regulator, is adapting, learning. Uh, and so we're good relationships, we're compliant, uh, always looking to learn. Um, and so we're not getting around anything. 
uh, we're executing and, and working in lockstep uh, as we should. I should have said, I should have said, how are you handling it rather than getting around it? I didn't mean to infer that you were uh, by, bypassing any rules, Jack. You're sensitive to that. Now, I was going to ask you about El Salvador, but I don't have time. I'm going to have to get you back. I have to ask where you are. You, you look like you're in the most phenomenal walk-in wardrobe in the world, except it's empty. Jack, where, where are you? I am in a giant, empty women's closet. You're exactly correct, <laughs> Not necessarily a woman's. <laughs> You're right. I guess technically hey. it's a giant, empty men's closet because it's mine. It's a good I could definitely point. feel that. I could definitely feel that. <laughs> Great to yeah, have you well, on. I guess I can. Come back and talk to us about El Salvador as well, because I know you're involved in their ambitions as far as Bitcoin and legal tender is concerned. So we, we have more to talk about. But um, yeah, one track mind today. Jake Mallers, great to have you on, the CEO of Strike. I'm here whenever you call. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, We'll see you soon. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. You know, sometimes you ask for something and the world provides. And I'm pleased to say Jack Mallis is back with us, the CEO of Strike. A few technical issues here. And Jack, you were still in the hot seat. So we do get to talk about El Salvador after all. Talk to me about what Strike is doing there. So again, Julius, Strike optimizes around this thesis that we now have a global instant free monetary network for the world. El Salvador is an emerging market. It's a developing country. And you're talking about a place where 70, 70, not 17 percent of their citizens don't have a bank account. They don't have access to any monetary network. They're still living on a cash standard like we were 50 years ago. Right. And so what we want to do is make this monetary network accessible to them, give them an access to high quality of life, basic human freedoms to where the cash apps and the Venmos that we're so privileged to here, they don't have access to that and, and make this monetary network extensible to them because a very important point, it's the most inclusive monetary network of all time. It works the same here in this closet as it does in El Salvador. That's a very, very positive and helpful concept to understand. That does not vouch the same for Venmo, like I said. So that's our goal is to make this monetary network extensible, usable, and helpful to people that need it most. I mean, I think that's the allure of cryptocurrencies in general, whether you're talking about Bitcoin or some of the others. It's borderless, it's global, no single nation uh, has jurisdiction or oversight for better or for worse. And that's also at times a challenge too. Um, But just in light of the conversation that, that we've just had, what role really beyond just saying, OK, you can go ahead and allow this and people can create or have their own wallets and, and exchange, does the government need to play? Because, you know, I spoke to the chief of the IMF and she was like, just because something's possible doesn't make it a good idea in terms of making Bitcoin legal tender. Does the government even need to do that, Jack? Give us your wisdom. Um, listen, well, let me actually simply know. What, yeah. Another very powerful, powerful concept, Julia, is that the Bitcoin network, it's an open network. Julia, in the same way that Google could not do anything for the rest of the year and they'd be a better company come January 1st, 2022. How? Because everyone else around the world is making the internet better and every new website that joins the internet makes Google a more valuable company. So if they wanted to, they could just sit on their hands and continue to appreciate in their value proposition because they're in an open network that is the internet. Bitcoin is the same thing. If the government of El Salvador doesn't want to do anything ever again, you know who's making Bitcoin better and their financial infrastructure better? Myself, Jack Dorsey, Twitter now all of a sudden, developers all over the world. So they don't have to 
but they want to. Why do they want to? It's because they now have access. They don't have to ask permission from any central body, from any counterpart. They have access to a monetary network that acts in their best interest and a monetary asset that acts in their best interest. You're talking about an emerging market that gets absolutely crushed by the expansion of monetary supply at central banks. So if I'm a government and my job is to provide a high quality of life to my citizens, there's really no other project I should frankly be spending my time on. So do they have to? No. Should they? Arguably? I think so. I think their efforts in Bitcoin are brave and I'm very supportive of what they're doing. Yeah, it's an alternative when there's a lack of trust in institutions and when you have great volatility and depreciation in your, in your currency anyway, which is why I think sort of certain nations are looking at this and other nations are far slower to react because they sort of have the luxury or the control of not having to worry so much. And there's going to be criticism of me saying that, I think, from, um, from certain quarters, because I know there's criticism of the US dollar and, and monetary policy here. Jack, you mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, and I do think it's really important. How does any of this tie to the value of cryptocurrencies, because I do think we have to talk more and more about cryptocurrencies and the volatility and the price changes that we see there and, and sort of dissociate that or in some way understand the value of the underlying technology and what that represents too. How does the value of Bitcoin change or not change what you're doing? So it's actually a very interesting point. Internally at Strike, we make a divide between Bitcoin, the asset that is typically priced in dollars, and Bitcoin, the network that we deem revolutionary and disruptive to existing monetary networks like a Visa or like a PayPal. Um, and so if Bitcoin was $100 or if Bitcoin was $100,000, I can still get money from here to Japan instantly and at no cost and not even allow the consumer to be aware that I'm using Bitcoin under the hood. So we're unaffected and the network is going to disrupt the world no matter what the Bitcoin price is. Bitcoin, the asset, I expect to go well into the six figures this year. And that's because it is the only asset in human history that we've designed from scratch. We engineered it to be perfect. And so I expect it to appreciate against a global macro environment that's quite frankly, absolutely chaotic and asinine. Um, but we think of them as separate technologies and disruptive and innovative in totally different ways. Okay, we've already talked about this, but I need you to reiterate it. And we've got about 30 seconds. The foreign exchange risk, the volatility in the price of Bitcoin, Bitcoin if you're trying to convert to dollars at any given point, why is that not important? Why does that not a pain point? Why is that not a pain point? Yeah, so let's walk through... I'll, 30 second example. <laughs> no, sorry. From, <laughs> no, it's okay. Don't apologize. We got this. Money coming in from Japan. We are going to take the Japanese yen, live convert it, zip it to Bitcoin. That's Bitcoin's going to get to this closet instantly and in for free, and we're going to convert it to dollars. Julia, all that took one second. And so we're willing to take price volatility worth one second for that level of disruption. That's not a problem. And that type of balance sheet risk is nothing compared to the services you use today. So it comes easy, Julia, comes easy. Micro, micro, microscopic exchange risk, foreign exchange risk, if you can do it super fast. Jack, you need more than one Bitcoin to fill that closet. You will be back to speak to us again <laughs> soon. I'm glad, I'm glad we, uh, we got to chat again. Jack Mallis, CEO of Strike. Thank you, sir. Great to chat. Out of all. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Cheers. All right, after the break, Scarlett Johansson and Disney put their lawsuit behind them and settle their differences over pay. That's in two minutes. Don't go away. Come on, Bond. Where the hell are you? 
Mr. Bond, we've been expecting you. It's been a really long wait. Stunning car chases and shooting in sewers. It can mean only one thing, the release of No Time to Die, which was delayed by almost 18 months with the pandemic. And while Bond wages war on the bad guys, Disney and Scarlett Johansson have made peace. They've settled a dispute about how actors are paid if a movie is released in theatres and via streaming at the same time. Frank Pelota is here. Frank, I'm super excited about Bond, but we don't have time to talk about it. We have to talk about Scarlett no longer seeing Scarlett. What do we know about their arrangement? There's been a lot of news about super spies in the entertainment industry lately with James Bond and Black (laughs) Widow. Basically, last night, a big movement in the uh, Scarlett Johansson versus Disney lawsuit. Basically, the two sides finally realized, let's just come together here and settle. And that's exactly what happened. They resolved their dispute is what Disney's basically saying. And what that basically means is that they found a settlement. Now, there's some reports out there uh, that, you know, Scarlett Johansson, who argued and alleged in the lawsuit that by putting Black Widow in theaters and on Disney Plus at the same time, it basically took away the money that she said she was going to earn. Instead, now they said that they finally have come to terms. What those terms exactly are were not disclosed. Some reports have it out there as much as $40 million. I haven't done that reporting, so I don't know if that's the actual number, but that sounds like a good chunk of change. And basically, this just allows one of the biggest stars in Hollywood and the biggest studio in Hollywood to stop fighting in public. So in my view, this was pretty much negotiation, but via litigation. Wow, but ultimately we think she got more money and the franchise will continue to to use her because I guess that was the risk. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, and she has other things going on at Disney too. She's producing a Tower of Terror uh, film for Disney Plus, I believe, for Disney, you know, Alan Bergman, the chairman of Disney Studios Content, said last night that he's he's excited to continue to work with Scarlett Johansson. And Johansson, in a statement, also said that she's happy that they could come together on this finally after all this time. But this is a huge deal because this was like, like a cultural flashpoint in Hollywood. We're trying to figure out what the future of entertainment looks like. But more importantly, this lawsuit showed how are the creators and directors and actresses and actors are going to come together? How are they going to be compensated for that content that we're going to watch? in streaming or in theaters or, you know, when they implant a chip in our brains and that's how we watch Disney movies like 20 years from now. We're trying to figure out how people are going to pay for that going forward. And this lawsuit, which has now come to an end, was a big flashpoint about that. Yeah, I I sort of think that's a win for Scarlett. Now the industry has to work out how they pay everybody else because it's been a challenging period. Frank, great to have you with us. Frank Pelota there. Have a great weekend. That's it for the show. Stay safe as always. And a special Connect the World with Becky Anderson from Dubai's Expo 2020 is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.